Hello, church. My name is Hannah, and we'll now be reading today's passage in the scriptures from John chapter 13, verses 21 to 29. Please follow along in your Bibles or up on the screen behind me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that maybe because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. This is the reading of God's word. All right, well, if you've been here for a while, you'll have probably known July has been our guest speaker month, and I have the privilege of uh, announcing our last guest speaker. Um, he's someone I was really uh, excited to have him come speak to us. Uh, for this Sunday, we have... Dave Lomas, he's the lead pastor of Reality San Francisco. He's also the founding pastor, which he planted in January 2010, so almost 12 years ago. Um, he's also an author of The Truest Thing About You. It's a book that came from his first three years of pastoring. Um, but his favorite work, however, is being a husband to Ashley and a dad to his children, Juniper and Noen. Um, so I'm really excited to have Dave speak for us. I even got a sneak peek of what he's going to speak about. I think it's going to hit our church very well. Um, so if we could all just give a round of applause for Dave as he comes up. Thank you. It's really um, an honor to be here. Uh, I haven't taught in like over a month, so this is going to get really, it could be really bad. So we'll see. We'll see how she goes today. Um, today I'd like to talk about this idea of leaning back. If you read, if you're reading along in that text, you'll notice that um, it was a really odd text to read on a guest, right? For a guest, like, you know, Judas is about to betray Jesus and all this stuff is happening. Um, but what I want to kind of focus in on is that part where um, the disciple whom Jesus loved, and he's not named on purpose, is leaning back against Jesus when all of this commotion is happening. That's kind of what I want to come at. So let me pray before I jump in, and uh, that's what I want, uh, I'd like to do today. So God, I pray that you, by the power of your spirit, would teach us. We all come in with so many things we carry if we um, are trying to live and work in the city, let alone um, trying to meet somebody or raise kids here. It's just a really difficult place to be and to live sometimes as a follower of Jesus. So I pray that as we show up with all the stuff that you would break in and um, open our eyes, open the eyes of our heart to see you, to give us perspective, to remind us who we are in Christ, um, and we would leave changed. I pray that you would fill me with your spirit and um, give me your heart in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, to live and work in San Francisco and this area um, is like an insane place to live and work and raise a family, um, a city that most often people uh, in the rest of the country write off, they think is crazy. I don't know if you ever read Rebecca Solnit in her book called Infinite City says of San Francisco, she says, it's the most left part of the left coast where 
um, the most un-American place where America reinvents itself or invents itself. And I think that's really true, but it's also historically where people have moved here to um, mine gold, whatever that means. Uh, it could mean literal gold uh, in the 1800s or tech gold now, and they leave here. They mine gold and then they leave. And so to find a sustainable rhythm in San Francisco, in this area, in the Bay Area, to live and to work and to meet and to be uh, in community and to be in love and uh, uh, raise children. It's a very, very, very difficult place. I've been here now for 13 years. And reflecting back on years of ministry, I think I would summarize my time in the San Francisco Bay Area for me as trying with everything that I've had, everything I've within me to lean in, to lean into every single opportunity I could. We planted a church in San Francisco in 2010 and from that time, I've leaned into teaching, leaned into leadership, leaned into uh, the voice that I believe God has given me. I've leaned into opportunities that were before me, leaned into community and trying to live sustainable life in an insane place in San Francisco. I've leaned into a lot of things. And I also think, for the most part, the message that we get from our culture, especially in a city uh, or place or area like ours is to lean in. We're told and we're taught to lean into our careers, into networking, into getting our 10-year plan planned and then executed to lean into opportunities and relationships and to ministry and to personal growth and leadership and trying to start a family, leaning into that and to all the other things that we, go, we have going on in life. Sheryl Sandberg, the CEO of Facebook, has a wildly popular book on women in the workplace called Lean In. And the message is to lean into your career as women because, she says, men lean into their careers and women, should, women shouldn't be afraid of being ambitious. Now, here's the thing. We're all leaning in now. Like men and women, we're all leaning in. And there is a good place for leaning in into our futures and especially for women's equality in the workplace. However, with all of us leaning in, John gives us an enduring and vivid picture for what discipleship to Jesus looks like, and it's leaning back. In our text was the night of Jesus' betrayal. Jesus was enjoying uh, the Last Supper meal with his disciples. Now, they would be sitting um, in a table that was shaped like a U, and on the inside is where the servants uh, would serve the meal, and on the outside is where the disciples would be sitting. And the table wouldn't be like table and chairs like we have. It would be a very low table where there'd be pillows all around and they'd be leaning on their left side and eating with their right side. So you can tell by the way that they would eat that it's really easy to kind of like lean on other people, especially as you get later into the meal and you've had a couple glasses of wine, like I'm just gonna lean on you for a little bit here because you're close to me and you're comfortable, that sort of thing. And so they would be around this table Reclining, And as they're around this table reclining, one of the closest 12 disciples, um, as they're around these things, one of them, Jesus says, is going to betray Jesus. Jesus was kind of, I mean, I don't know if you uh, have awkward meals or dinners with like in-laws or something and it gets really awkward. I mean, we've all been around awkward situations, but this is where it gets really awkward with Jesus. They're all around Jesus like enjoying a great meal with his disciples and then someone, Jesus says, one of you in here is going to betray me. And the disciples are like, wait, this is not really a good dinner conversation. Like what's, what's happening here? And then someone 
leans over to the disciple who's next to Jesus and says, ask him who it is. And at this point, the room gets incredibly tense. Now, Judas is there, and we all know the story. It's going to be Judas. Judas is there, hatred in his heart, tired of Jesus' teachings, tired of his promises, sick of Jesus' way, even his life, and he finally agrees to get rid or help to get rid of Jesus. Judas is plotting to betray Jesus, and Jesus knows it. One mystical writer says this about betrayal. Betrayal is more than separation or rejection. To betray is to use the secrets of a person's personal life, thoughts confined to a friend, and to turn against that person, to use their confided thought or words in order to hurt and defile them, to destroy a reputation. Judas betrayed Jesus. He knew Jesus' secrets. He knew his thoughts. He even knew where Jesus would be that night when he was about to betray him. Think about it like this. He knew that Jesus would go quietly. He told the centurions that he was with that Jesus wouldn't put up a fight. He knew that much about Jesus. And Jesus, during this meal, is no longer able to contain his emotion, his anguish. He starts to say, he starts to blurt out, someone's going to betray me. Look at verses 21. It said, Jesus was troubled in spirit, or he was in anguish. And he said, truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. It isn't like, it's like Jesus isn't able to emotionally hold on to this information anymore. I don't know if you've ever been there in your own life to where you know something that's wrecking you so emotionally that when you're with people that you love, it comes out of you. You can't hold on to it any longer. This is exactly what's going on with Jesus. And he says, one of you, I can't hold this information in anymore. One of you is going to betray me. And his disciples are shattered by this revelation. They're stunned. And maybe not as much as what Jesus says, but maybe by the way that Jesus would have said it. Probably trembling, probably his voice quivering, his words told through maybe held back tears. Now, Jesus is not ice cold in this moment. If you've read the accounts leading up to the cross of Christ, he isn't ice cold going into the cross. He's in anguish. He's begging his disciples to stay up and pray with him. He's pleading to the Father to take this cup from him. He's sweating blood, one account says. I mean, Jesus is not ice cold at this moment, so to kick this whole thing off, he's having a meal with his closest friends. He's like, one of you is gonna be the one who betrays me. And his disciple leans over and says, who is it gonna be? And then Jesus did this really weird cryptic thing. He's like, I'll tell you who it's gonna be. I'm gonna dip this bread in this cup and give it to the person who's gonna betray me. And he takes it and he dips it and he goes, here you go, Judas. And Judas is like, uh, thank you? He takes it and everyone goes, what is happening? Like, what's going on? Is, this, is Jesus telling him because he has the money? Like, what is, nobody knows what's going on. They're all f- kind of freaking out. What's happening here? When Judas finally leaves the room, it says this. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. Now, why does John say it was night? Well, because it was night. That's why. 
So if you read the Bible, you're like, that is such a great insight. Thank you, Pastor, for driving all the way up here to tell us that. Well, also, yes, it was night, but also, because John loves to play with this light and dark metaphor. If you've ever read John's gospel, he's actually playing with this light and dark metaphor since like the opening verse, the opening verses. Look at verse, chapter one, verse four. In him was life, and the life was the light of all mankind. The light shined in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John is playing with these polarities, light and dark, day and night. Do you see that? And so here, when, when Jesus, who is the light of the world, is betrayed, John comments, and it was night. Why? Because it was night, but also because Judas was turning away from the light of the world and stepping into the deepest, darkest, most cold place anyone has ever known. See, the reason why John does this is Judas is rejecting Jesus' love at this moment. He's rejecting it. He's betraying it. He's turning away from it. It started, if, you've, if you follow along in the story, it started by Judas losing trust in Jesus. It progressed by opposing Jesus, like we have several accounts of Judas opposing Jesus, not really taking him in his word, not really believing him, ascribing to him alternative on ulterior motives. And then it culminates by outright rejection of Jesus' love. And from that point on, no light could come in anymore. Judas was in darkness. And in darkness, you make some of the worst decisions a human can make. But this is what John is doing here. What he's doing in his, his, his gospel is he's, he's sharing these polarities, light and dark, because during the dark scene, we're given another polarity, another contrast to the darkness that Judas is in. And he is the unnamed disciple. Now, obviously, you might know who this disciple is, but he's unnamed. We don't know who he is in the way that the narrative is told, we're only told it's the disciple whom Jesus loved. See, as Judas is plotting betrayal, there's another disciple who's literally leaning back on Jesus's chest, who is so close to Christ in warm fellowship and intimacy, who's there in trust, who's there in comfort. The text almost makes it Look as if the disciple gets closer to Jesus after Christ confesses his agony because it says that he's reclining next to Jesus and then it says the disciple leans back against Jesus. It's almost as if this disciple feels Jesus' heart begin to break and leans back on him in loving intimacy. Like I said, we're not told who this disciple is next to Jesus. This person is not named and that's a rhetorical device. It, we're, just, we're just told this is the disciple whom Jesus loved, which means it can be any of us. It can be all of us. That's the point. That's why it's not named. It could be you. It could be me. Here's the polarity. Judas rejects Jesus' love. The beloved disciple absorbs Jesus' love. It draws error ever near to Jesus' love. Literally places his body up against Jesus' body. Now, these are extreme, 
But if you've ever read the writings of John, he is black and white kind of person. And what John is saying is that, listen, you are either moving away from Jesus' love in more and more rejection, or you are drawing ever nearer to Jesus in intimacy. And that's it. Now, if you know what it's like to be a follower of Jesus, you know this is pretty spot on. You are either moving further and further away in isolation, in darkness, and in coldness, or you're moving ever closer. There is no neutrality. You are being pulled away from Christ or you're, being, you're moving towards Christ. There is no middle ground. Now, let's turn our attention to meditate on the image of this beloved disciple for a minute, the one who's leaning back on Jesus. They are reclining around a table, like I told you. They're on the ground reclining. Remember, no chairs, just cushions. And this disciple leans back on Jesus. It says that he's on Jesus' chest. Some translations say he's on his bosom. Now, we don't use that word bosom anymore. I'm not trying to resurrect that word. But that's what some, if you have King James Version or I think some NASB versions have, bosom. And when you put your head on someone else's chest, your ear is right above that person's heart to where you can hear their heartbeat. Think about that. The disciple whom Jesus loved is leaning back on Jesus, on his chest, his ear just above Christ's heart, able to hear his heartbeat. And with this, we get John's ultimate image for what a disciple is. For John, it says on the screen, a disciple is someone who is leaning back on Jesus, hearing his heartbeat, and from that perspective, looking into the world. This is John's like enduring image. This is what John's saying. This is what a disciple of Jesus is. If you're a disciple of Jesus, you are someone who's moving closer to Jesus, your ear on his chest, you see the world with Christ's heartbeat in your ear. I have a good friend whose, uh, whose son's name is Moses, and when Moses, when we vacationed together in the past, when Moses was um, really young, I think he was about um, maybe seven at the time, we went and we vacationed in uh, Kauai. Anyone been to Kauai in Hawaii? A few of you? We get there in Kauai, and Ash and I, my wife and I, get there, and uh, they're playing in the ocean, so I join them playing in the ocean, and Moses is just like, Dave, come throw me in the waves. I'm throwing them, and, and, and we're having this great time, and then all of a sudden, he disappears, and then all, he just shows up, and he's like right in my face, like swimming, and he's like right next to me, and he's just, again, this kid loves, oh, I didn't mention this, this kid loves to cuddle, by the way, like loves to cuddle. He just leans on my face, he goes, Dave, when we're done playing, can we go on the beach and cuddle? And I'm like, I don't, we can ask your folks. I don't really know like what the rules are. But now I, I love this image of Moses like asking, like, can we just cuddle? Like, Dave, Dave, we just gotta like play and then cuddle. This is like, he's like Elf, like from the movie Elf. This is, this is kind of like what John's talking about for disciples of Jesus. They want, they literally want to be so near Jesus. They wanna be like, in his heart. They want to know him personally and intimately. This is, this is John's enduring image of what a disciple of Jesus is like. That we would see our chaotic world 
from the place and from the perspective of leaning back on Jesus, attuned to his heartbeat, and I would even say attuned to his blood pressure. I took a sabbatical almost um, about five years ago. My next one's in two years, and um, no one's counting, but kind of, I am. Um, And right before I went on sabbatical, it was like eight years of pretty intense uh, ministry at, in San Francisco and a lot of like growth in the church and a lot of loss in the church and a lot of like opposition in the church, but a lot of fruit in the church and all this stuff. And I remember like I couldn't get my heart, my like, blood pressure to go down or my heart to stop racing and it would palpitate randomly and all this other stuff. And I went to the doctor and, um, and I said, um, I, I'm like, you know, my heart, I think, I, have, I think I might have like a heart thing. So the doctor gave me this like physical and he said, okay, here it is. You need to calm down and manage your stress. I'm like, yes, okay, I need a pill. He's like, I'm not gonna give you a pill for that. You need to calm down. You need to like reorder your life. This is my doctor who's not a follower of Jesus. Reorder your life to where you can like, your blood pressure goes down. Now there isn't, there probably is a pill, but I don't recommend a pill for that. There isn't a pill for that. There is a posture for that. And this is what I had to learn, even on my sabbatical, even this last five years, disciplining my life to where my life is like getting my blood pressure, my heartbeat is matching Jesus's. A disciple, next slide on the screen, a disciple is one who sees the world with the sound of Jesus's heart in their ear. This is what God has ultimately taught me after years of hard ministry leaning into everything that starting an endeavor entails. I learned that I have to see the world like this disciple did from place where I'm close enough to Jesus to hear his heart. And I'll tell you that I think somewhere in the midst of pastoring, over and over again, this happens. Like legit, and I'm a pastor, like I'm, a, I'm professionally paid to pray. I'm professionally paid to stay close to Jesus. And yet... Even in the midst of ministry, I lose sight of being intimate with Jesus. Now, Judas was a close follower of Jesus. This can happen to anyone. And for me, I had my eyes and my ears pressed up against my church and their needs and the city and its complexity and what I thought it needed. And what I'm saying is we can get so distracted. We get distracted by our career plan and like, how long do we date this person and then engage and then our wedding plan and then when we have kids and then my, my mom keeps telling me I should do this and that and all this other stuff. Like all these things swirl around in our heads and we just lose perspective of intimacy with Jesus. See, this disciple's location is probably intended to tell us something about him. He's reclining near Jesus's Chest. Now, this is a kind of a big deal. This is, um, this is where knowing Greek is fun. Where the disciple was in relation to Jesus is exactly where Jesus was in relation to God according to John's prologue. Let me explain this. Look at John 118. It's on the screen. John 118. No one has ever seen God. This is what John, how John opens his, his gospel. No one has ever seen God but the one and only son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the father has made him known. What John is saying is Jesus, who is so close to God, is able to make God known because he's from God and he's close to God the father. That's what he's saying. Now, let's read this in a different translation. Old King James. 
if you remember that translation of the Bible, says this, John 1.18, no man hath seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Now, I read that translation because bosom is really, really important here. Look at John 13, 23, our text. Now, there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Now, this word bosom in Greek is the exact same word, meaning that the disciple is as intimate with Jesus as Jesus is with the Father. Now, that might be too strong theologically for you, and I kind of understand that. Let me rephrase it. John is at least saying that this disciple relates to Jesus as Jesus relates to the Father. This is what John is trying to do. By the way, the disciple whom Jesus loved is John, who's writing this. And what John is saying, kind of, you know, through his, through his letter, he's like, the reason why I'm able to write about Jesus and make Jesus known to you is because I was close to him. I was actually right into his heart. The reason, the way Jesus is able to make known the Father is because Jesus is from the Father and was from his heart. You see what he's doing there? In essence, what, it, what, what, what I'm trying to say is that intimacy with Jesus has revelational relevance. Meaning we are able to make Jesus known as we're near him. We're, we're able to make Christ known as we know Christ. Now, I'm gonna get practical for a second. And I'll end by being practical. What, is, what does it mean to lean back? What does it require for us to be intimate with Christ, leaning back on Christ? What does that require of us? A few things. What does leaning back required? First, I think it requires us showing up. We have to show up to God. We have to show up to prayer. One of my favorite writers, Ronald Roheiser, in his book on prayer says, there is no bad way to pray, and I'll, and I'll qualify that in a second because you might not agree with that, but let me qualify that in a second. There is no bad way to pray, and there is no one starting point for prayer. All the great spiritual masters offer only one non-negotiable rule. You have to show up for prayer, and you have to show up regularly. Every single spiritual writer will tell you the same thing. Now, what Rawheiser is saying is there's no bad way to pray, Meaning you can pray sitting down, you can pray standing up, you can pray on your knees, you can pray out loud in your head with worship music playing in silence on a walk in bed. The only non-negotiable rule is you have to show up to God and show up regularly. Now I have confession time. We did confession earlier, but this is confession part two. I have clinically off the charts ADD, like legit saw a psychiatrist several years ago and he's like, can you take this test with me? I'm like, sure. And he's like, you have off, the like, off my charts ADD. Now, I'm distracted. The reason why I say this to you is I'm distracted very easily. I'm distracted by the thought of being distracted and how to like, not be distracted, but then I'm distracted by that thought. Like that, so it's like that, that bad. And so for me, what I've journaled throughout the years over and over again is that my single biggest weakness in prayer is regularity. And so if you're like, Dave, you don't know, I, I'm like, I have ADD, or, or you don't know, like, I'm busy, I can't show up to God regularly. I can't build in prayer life regularly. And I'll tell you that it's, it's also come really, really difficult for me, too. But I'll say that you have to show up daily. Now, I'm not saying you have to show up for two hours every day. I'm not even saying you show up for 30 minutes every day. It could be two minutes. It could be five minutes. Showing up to prayer daily is so important. 
Um, has anyone seen the movie 50 First Dates? Adam Sandler, Drew Barrymore, anyone? Everyone? Everyone? Okay, great. Because I'm going to give away the ending, so if you haven't seen it, it's your bat, okay? <laughs> um, so in this movie, Drew Barrymore has uh, short-term memory loss, and she can't remember one day to the next. And all the people she meets, even falling in love with Adam Sandler's characters, completely lost on her every single morning. She wakes up and her memory is wiped clean because of an accident that she had. Now, by the end of the movie, Adam Sandler, obviously, they fall in love, all this other stuff. By the end of the movie, in order to progress and move on in her life, she is given a video that she watches every morning when she wakes up. And it details her life, what happened to her, how she fell in love with Adam Sandler's character, and the life that she now lives. And every morning she goes through this emotional roller coaster of realizing who she is. Now, I share that with you because that movie's awesome. And I share that with you because I realize that sadly that is my life as well. It's like no matter how good my day was with God, I will go to sleep, wake up, and forget the next morning. Maybe it will be different when I'm 50. Maybe it will be worse when I'm 50. I have no idea. So I have to, every single morning, wake up, spend time praying, reminding my soul who I am in Christ, what Christ has done for me by redeeming me, and what it looks like to walk in fellowship with God and obedience to him every single day. This is the Christian life. To remember, this is Israel's greatest sin in the Old Testament, they forget, and this is why over and over again, God tells them to remember. Remember, remember, remember. We have spiritual amnesia all the time. Now, the second thing I think is really important, not only show up regularly, but put away distraction. Now, this one's a little hard, I'm not, I'm not gonna lie. Because imagine if, you, if, if disciples are leaning back against Jesus, and they're reclining, and they're having a moment, and then all of a sudden, notifications go off in like John's cloak, and his phone's like, and Jesus is like, whoa, like this moment's ruined, like completely ruined. We have to put away distraction. One of my, when I went on sabbatical, I got a burner phone, like I legitimately got rid of my phone and bought a burner phone and gave no one the number at all, and only used it for like a phone if we needed, like we're going through Europe, if we needed to call someplace, and so, um, but my favorite saying was, let's just not know. That was my favorite saying. It's actually one of my favorite sayings today. I use it on my wife all the time. She hates it. Let's just not know. You know how when you're like at a dinner and you're like, what's that movie? Drew Barrymore. But there was someone, uh, Drew Barrymore also played another movie. What is that movie? And it was like, I don't know. And they grab their phones, they look it up, and then you lost the entire table for like 18 minutes because it's like, oh, I had a notification. Oh, I had an email. Oh, that text. And everyone's distracted. And we have this great thing where we think we have to know everything. And I like just saying, let's just not know. What does it feel like to not know something? Let's just sit and not know. Don't grab your phone. Don't look it up. Let's just sit in the mystery of being human and not knowing everything. That was like one of my favorite things. But one of the things that actually like came up on our sabbatical that we didn't know was like why we've never seen a baby pigeon. Why haven't you seen a baby pigeon? You've seen baby everythings, but not a baby pigeon. And so as soon as, and I would just travel, like we're on for three months, and I would meet people, and I would, conversation would happen, like, have you ever seen a baby pigeon? They're like, no, no, why haven't I seen a baby pigeon? And they would freak out. They would like legitimately start freaking out. And they would grab their phone, I'm like, no, 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 no. Let's just not know. Let's let pigeons keep this secret. I think they're from hell, like directly from hell. And they fly out of hell full, like fully, like formed. 
That's, what, that's my theory. That's my leading theory to this point. I still don't know where baby pigeons come from, if there are baby pigeons and all that stuff. But this feeling of like not knowing. See, our, our culture has this like powerful narcotic for good and for bad. And the, and the narcotic soothes us. That's what narcotics do. It protects us from raw pain. And our culture has within it the very kind of thing from medicine to entertainment to shield us from suffering. And sometimes that can be good, but a narcotic can also be bad, especially when it becomes escape, a way of escaping reality. We use Twitter and Instagram and TikTok and our phones and email and our news app as a narcotic. It soothes us. It's our modern day smoke break. We need it. We touch our phones so many times throughout the day. And what it does is it shields us from having to face the deeper issues of life, like faith and forgiveness and mortality and, even, and, and our morality. It just like, it, it shields us from that. So where you would sit there in a rush of like, I am finite. I'm gonna die one day. We don't, we don't get there in our like alone time. When we're sitting in a car waiting for a red light, we're like, oh, Twitter, oh, and we're doing that and we're just distracting ourselves all the time. Things like our phone and entertainment can be set against the interior life, keeping us so preoccupied and so distracted that we lose focus on the deeper things. You and I, who live in this area, live in and around. I know that you work in tech, and we've made and you've made things in our life that are wonderfully efficient and has also conspired against our depth. I remember Netflix saying, our greatest... I mean, not now, but used to when they were huge. Um, our greatest enemy is sleep. That's what we're fighting against, sleep. That's, that's the thing that's gonna pull people off our platform. We have become so attentive to so many things and we aren't attentive to anything, especially what's deep inside of us. And so if we're going to start leaning back, if we're going to start developing intimacy with Jesus, we have to learn how to put our phones away, put them to bed, put them away, and spend time with God. Lastly, and I'll close right here, we need to learn to let go. Now, I would imagine there's a lot of visionary leaders in this room. Many of you can see the future or future world and order your world to make it happen, order companies and objects and code and materials and relationships and opportunities to make this future world possible. And in the same way, when we go to God, we attempt to order, the same way we attempt to order our world, we attempt to use God to produce our own transformation. We try to manipulate God to bring about the changes we decided that we need. What we need to really do, what we need to do is to release control of our relationship with God to God. The way that we do that, the, the quickest way we do that is silence and solitude. Being alone with God and with God alone. Without phones, without distraction, try it an hour a week. Try it a day, a year, just with God and God alone. Robert Mulholland, in one of the best books on spiritual formation that you can read, says in his book, Imitation to a Journey, the practice of silence is the radical reversal of our cultural tendencies. 
Silence is bringing ourselves to a point of relinquishing to God our control of our relationship with God. Silence is a reversal of the whole processing, controlling, grasping dynamic of trying to maintain control of our own existence. Silence is the inner act of letting go. Ruth Haley Barton says in her book, without her book called Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership, without the regular experience of being received and loved by God in solitude and silence, we are vulnerable to a kind of leadership that is driven by profound emptiness that we are seeking to fill through performance and achievement. See, maybe Judas was following Jesus to try to control Jesus. Maybe Judas was so driven by a profound emptiness that when he started to realize that Jesus wouldn't bend to his will, he decided to get rid of him. But the enduring picture of discipleship is not from Judas, but from the disciple whom Jesus loved, who's leaning back on Jesus, showing up without distraction, letting go of control of whatever happens to Jesus. Now, I know our world has been insane for the last forever, probably. But I'll tell you, the only way to get true perspective of what's going on in our world and have any capacity to do something about it whatsoever is from a place of leaning back on Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for receiving us. Thank you for making a way as we, as we sang um, in the opening worship songs. Thank you for making a way that we can have fellowship with you. This is truly it. This is what you prayed that we would experience, that we would experience our union with you that you are in God, God is in you, and then we are in you. This is true life, intimacy and fellowship with you. I pray for my brothers and sisters that um, they, as they go from here, as they plan their week, as they look and they, they think about their next Monday through Sunday, that there'd be creative ways and moments that they're able to begin to lean back on you and trust in you and build intimacy with you, God. And I pray that from that would come powerful leadership, influence in this, in this area for Christ, and that people be drawn to you, God. We love you, we thank you in Jesus' name, amen.